c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tory. I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict. back to histories and mysteries i'm jessica and i'm still janelle and today we're talking about the sinking of the whale ship essex <laughs> boats <laughs> boats boats and hubris our favorite <laughs> yeah you probably already know the story of moby dick uh, it's probably assigned to you uh you probably know it against your will but what you might not know is that the fictional story by herman melville actually takes heavily from various true accounts from nantucket whalers including but not limited to his own time at sea uh, i thought you were talking to me specifically like you know moby dick you're atlantic canadian you live this this is i'm under the impression you can't even walk outside without a harpoon nowadays isn't your city underwater currently at this moment I'm going to stick it to Galen Weston by <laughs> fishing in the street. <laughs> yeah, you're just going to take your kayak out one day, you know, to go get some groceries and get taken out by a beluga. <laughs> Which is weird. You were on fire two months ago. I know. Well, now keep up, Jessica. Now we're under six feet of disgusting flood water. <laughs> and in two months, we'll be we'll be blown off the map by a hurricane. Life comes at you fast when your planet's dying. Uh, but yeah, most notably, the idea of an elusive white whale comes from several reports of a male albino sperm whale known as Mocha Dick. <laughs> oh, I thought I wasn't going to be a 13-year-old boy about this, but I can't. That's <laughs> uh, And it was known as such due to being first spotted near the island of Mocha off the Chilean coast in 1810. <laughs> Mocha Dick was not the only albino sperm whale, nor was he notably aggressive. He didn't attack ships unless he was attacked first. But he was distinctive enough that his skill and cunning became notorious among Nantucket whalers. Mocha Richard, however, is never reported as having taken down a ship. Uh, <laughs> I'm so sad that we were cheated out of the opportunity to have Mocha Dick as a cultural touchstone. <laughs> uh, good old coffee penis. <laughs> He was elusive. <laughs> I chased chased him my whole life. <laughs> I just need that hit. <laughs> uh, he could apparently wreak havoc among whaling boats, which are effectively open-air lifeboats. Uh, but true cases of whales taking down whaling ships are rather rare. Uh, there are two well-documented incidents in the 19th century, both by non-albino male sperm whales. The first being the 1819 sinking of the Essex. The second being the 1851 sinking of the Anne Alexander. Moby Dick is specifically inspired by the sinking of the Essex, as the Anne Alexander sank on August 20th, 1851. And the first edition of Moby Dick was published 59 days later. <laughs> Such fortuitous timing from a marketing perspective. <laughs> <laughs> Truly, you you can't pay for that kind of timing. <laughs> but it had it had no inspiration from the Anne Alexander, if only because it's really hard to write two hundred thousand pages in less than sixty days. You know, it's a bit of a task. <laughs> if it happened today, Netflix would have a special up in three days. I'm pretty sure there's already something up about that submarine. <laughs> 
The entire 23-man crew of the Anne Alexander sheltered in lifeboats and were rescued only two days later. The whale, weakened, weakened by infection as a result of the harpoons and timber stuck in its head, was killed by whalers five months later. Oh. The 20 souls aboard the Essex had no such luck. <laughs> Dead whalers. Jessica's favorite. <laughs> it seems harsh to blame a whale for, like, taking down a whaling ship. That's... That's its only natural... Pr- it's, like, fair... I'd be like, fair enough. You know what? You get this one. If we get to hunt them to extinction, they get to take out, like, one boat. <laughs> Especially because, like, genuinely, very few whaling ships were taken out by whales. It genuinely feels like they could have gone harder on us. <laughs> and then the orcas attacked. <laughs> uh, the the orcas have been attacking for a while. We'll get into it. We'll we'll oh good. We'll we're get going. Into it. We're going to modern day orca yacht attacks. I love it. This this podcast has everything. <laughs> the Essex departed Nantucket, Massachusetts, on August twelfth, eighteen nineteen. As an aside for non American listeners, Nantucket is a small island twenty miles off the northeast coast of the United States. It's north of New York City, but south of Boston. And it was an important whaling hub. That's all you need to know about Nantucket. Yeah, emphasis on was. <laughs> was. Was. Was uh, important. Was. Um, the island's still there. The whaling, not so much. The Essex was a 20-year-old ship and relatively small at 26.7 meters or 87 feet and 7 inches. But she was recently refitted and had a reputation for being lucky because so many of her recent voyages had been very profitable. The ultimate destination was the western coast of South America, and the trip was expected to take two and a half years. Oh. A strenuous journey for an elderly vessel. <laughs> she had made the trip before, but needed several days repair in South America the last time. The captain was the recently promoted former first mate, George Pollard, uh, 28 years old, with Ooh. his own recently promoted first mate, Owen Chase, 22. A boat piloted by children, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh yeah, and everyone else is almost almost everyone else's children, like actual teenagers. <laughs> Much of what we know of the voyage comes from a written account by Chase, uh, titled <clears throat> "Narrative of the Most Extraordinary and Distressing Shipwreck of the Whale Ship Essex of Nantucket." Semicolon, which was attacked and finally destroyed by a large spermaceti whale in the Pacific Ocean. Semicolon, with an account of the unparalleled sufferings of the captain and crew during a space of 93 days at sea, comma, in open bo- boats in the years 1819 and 1820. <laughs> Man, they, they liked a specific title. Yeah, they didn't want you getting <laughs> this confused with all those other books about most extraordinary and distressing shipwrecks of whale ships which were attacked and finally destroyed by a large spermaceti whale in the Pacific Ocean with an account of unparalleled suffering of the captain and crew during a space of 92 days at sea. And this is the book that would inspire Moby Dick. <laughs> yes. Yes, it would. Full title. Full stop. <laughs> they, they definitely were a little bit more concise for the fictionalization. I mean, he used up all the title. There was nothing left. Much of this information is corroborated in another account written by the youngest member of the crew, 14-year-old Thomas Nickerson, the cabin boy. Later in life, he was encouraged to write his memoirs by writer Leon Lewis. Nickerson finished it in 1876, sent it to Lewis, uh, who left the manuscript abandoned in a trunk. 
Uh, he was a tad distracted at the time, due in part to severe debt and eloping with his dead wife's 15-year-old niece to Brazil. Ah, keeps keeps the man occupied, but also such is the plight of a writer. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you how many times that's happened to me. Uh, life comes at you, doesn't it? The manuscript was found in 1960, authenticated two decades later, and an abridged version was published oh. under the name, the far more succinct name, The Loss of the Ship Essex, Sunk by a Whale, and The Ordeal of the Crew in Open Boats. Not enough title. I, I need to know how many days it lasted and whether it caused significant distress to the crew <laughs> before I'm opening that book. Uh, in, and this was published in 1984, 101 years after Nickerson died. Ooh. Years. Ooh. Never give up on your dreams of publication. <laughs> uh, the core of the crew was primarily composed of white Nantucket locals, uh, including the captain, first mate, cabin boy, second mate, Matthew Joy, and sailors Barzillai Ray, Charles Ramsdale, Owen Coffin, and boat steers Benjamin Lawrence and Obed Hendricks. Sailors Isaac Cole, Seth Weeks, Joseph West, and William Wright were white Americans from outside of Nantucket, while boat steerer Thomas Chapel was an Englishman. Oh, fancy. <laughs> Exotic. Shortly before the ship was set to depart, the Essex was still short on crew, so they hired on seven black freemen. Steward William Bond, sailors Henry DeWitt, Richard Peterson, Samuel Reed, Charles Shorter, Isaiah Shepard, and Lawson Thomas. And I'm bringing this up for a reason. Labor for difficult work like whaling was hard to come by, and the owners of the Essex, like much of Nantucket's whaling industry, were abolitionist Quakers. Black sailors were thus paid the same as their white counterparts of the same rank, though they generally received worse food and had no opportunity for advancement. Hmm, still, you wouldn't think that like the most equitable career in the area was stabbing whales to death. Did not expect that to be a forefront of social progress. Well, part of it is just because it's a shit job. <laughs> you gotta pay people to do this. Like, <laughs> Come on, dude. <laughs> I'm just tired of these progressive corporations and their whale stabbing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you gotta sweeten the pot a little bit for a life of whale stabbing for worse food and conditions. So August 15th, the Essex was caught unprepared by a sudden squall. A sharp gust of wind, which knocked her on her beam ends. And if you're wondering what that means, the beam of a ship... See, Janelle already knows. <laughs> I was gonna say, cover your beam ends, you indecent ship. But also not good. <laughs> yeah, the beam of a ship is its width at its widest point. Now imagine that the width of the ship suddenly became a tight. <laughs> and what I mean is that the Essex was fully on its side. A situation that can end in capsizing, if not immediately addressed. Yeah, it's not great. You don't want that. My official word as a as a resident expert Nova Scotian, ship upside down, bad. Ship sideways, nope. bad. <laughs> Don't want. The ship ultimately righted herself when the squall passed, but this incident resulted in the destruction of the Essex top gallant sail and the loss of two whaleboats, as well as damage to a third. According to Nickerson, Captain Pollard wished to return to Nantucket for repairs, but first mate Chase insisted that they were fine to continue. Oh, the 22-year-old says it's fine. Mm, yes, the 22-year-old, overriding the 28-year-old, says that it's fine to continue with half your whaleboats fucked. <laughs> I feel like the motto of the story is less like, don't fuck with whales, and more just like, maybe don't listen to the 22-year-old. 
22-year-olds don't know what the fuck they're doing. (laughs) Second mate Joy agreed with Chase, in part because if they returned to port, some of the other men would likely jump ship, believing the knockdown to be a bad omen. Which, admittedly, yes. Also, um, were they wrong? (laughs) Like, I don't, like, not for, like, superstition reasons, but maybe, maybe. I mean, a bunch of them were about to die, so. You know, sometimes you you, you say bad omen. I say clear signs of a mechanical failure. (laughs) (laughs) Little column A, little column B. To hunt, a whaler requires at least three whale boats, and many had up to three spares. But Pollard, after consulting with his officers, chose to leave, despite the Essex only having two functioning whaleboats and perhaps a repairable spare. Oh my god, never listen to people under the age of 25. That's... Absolutely not. (laughs) Never. But there is an interesting discrepancy between the two primary sources here. Hmm. As Owen Chase was an adult, an experienced officer, and wrote his account far sooner after the incident, there's a lot of reasons why one might expect it to be the more reliable of the two. Owen Chase doesn't ever mention George Pollard initially wanting to turn around, while Nickerson, the cabin boy, does. Hmm. Chase likewise depicts the whole incident of the ship nearly capsizing like it's no big deal. Which might be because that would otherwise show bad judgment on his part. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> so that that's what I'm going to say about the two sources here. One of them is written by an adult contemporaneously, but it's written by an adult who, who, who has, like, skin in the game in terms of perception. Yeah, an adult who doesn't want to be held liable for damages. The Essex provision in the Azores, in the middle of the Atlantic, on September 2nd, before turning south. Two weeks later, they made sight of Cabo Verde, an island chain off the west coast of Africa. September 19th, on Mayo Island, they spotted the wreck of the Archimedes, a whaler from New York, which had run aground and was currently being salvaged. There, they purchased one of the Archimedes' whaleboats, which was old, kind of leaky, but, you know, it is a whaleboat. <laughs> but it does add up to three. Having a lot of finger counting here, we have now three and a spare. Uh, <laughs> a, a veritable wealth of whaling ships. Boats, not ships. The Essex was already well down the coast of South America, past Rio de Janeiro, when they caught sight of their first whale spout in October. Whale hunts typically follow a set pattern. The captain and the two mates would each lead one whaleboat, each with one boat steerer and four men on oars. This left only three men on the Essex, the absolute bare minimum necessary to safely control her. One of which is Thomas Nickerson, who is 14. <laughs> 14 year olds don't count as people honestly they're like two raccoons in a adidas sweater that's they're not <laughs> <laughs> absolutely not grow a frontal lobe and we'll talk the boats approach the whale as quietly as possible and when they are in close quarters shoot a harpoon into the target often followed by holding on for dear life as the whale takes off dragging the boat along behind it what was known as a Nantucket sleigh ride. It's like 
terrible New England water skiing. <laughs> yeah, water skiing, but instead of a ship, it is an angry, wounded, several ton animal. Majestic creature of the deep bleeding out so you can turn it into lamp fuel. As the boat is dragged along, the captain or mate in charge of the boat either stabs the whale's tendons, uh, tail tendons, to slow it down, or moves to the bow with a 11-foot lance, where they stab the whale in the rough area of the arteries close to its lungs, sometimes as many as over a dozen times. And this means that as the whale dies, its final breath sprays a large amount of blood and gore in a giant red chimney. Hmm. Very gross. Delightful. What do you... Like, whales dive. What do you do? <laughs> do you just drown? <laughs> I. It depends on if it's powerful enough to drag your boat under. Basically. <laughs> like, is that is that... That's a contingency you have to be prepared for, surely. <laughs> well, because, like, you kind of get it where, like, the Inuit would hunt whales by, like, harpooning them with air bladders, you know, tied to a rope. So that it would it would stop them from being able to dive. Uh, Europeans just tied themselves to the whale. <laughs> that seems dumber in every possible respect. <laughs> yeah, I mean, admittedly, they hadn't been doing it as long. Uh, there was some some problems with the alpha process. <laughs> <laughs> some some bugs to work out. But in this case, however, after Chase's boat sidled up alongside the pod. Uh, But before the boat steerer, Lawrence, could fire a shot, the whack of a second whale's tail sent men and boat flying. The pod took off, leaving the men to cling to the side of their crushed vessel and await rescue from the other boats. Several days after the repair of Chase's boat, they once more spotted a whale spout. This time, the hunt was successful. They then dragged the body back and lashed it to the ship for processing a step that could take up to three days. Like, typically, they're just stripping off the fat, they're boiling it down, they're storing it in barrels, and then they're just leaving the corpse there to rot. Oh, I bet a crew of unwashed teenage boys who've been at sea for a year, boiling dead whale smells incredible. Like, in a way that it's almost physical. Like, you could, this is a smell you could accidentally bump into. I feel like this is a smell like modern people would not survive. Like, the way that, like, eating one, like, flavor-blasted Cheeto would take out, like, a Victorian peasant boy. Like, this would take us out. This is our... Yeah, like... this is our equivalent. <laughs> like, this is, this is a smell that you can taste. And, and chew, probably. Like bubblegum. <laughs> uh, it was January before the Essex rounded Cape Horn at the tip of South America, and they had only caught one whale. This was unusual compared to years past. But it's a problem easily explained by the ramifications of long-term overhunting of a prey animal that quite simply did not reproduce fast enough. They're a renewable resource, but like, kind of. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't really make sense for human beings to be hunting an animal with the same lifespan as human beings. Do they live that long? Holy shit. Like, orcas easily live into their 80s. Holy shit. 60s to 80s. Yeah. Oh my god, I was going off like... Whales have grandparents. (laughs) I had some like SeaWorld ass numbers in my head. I was like, whales probably live to be about 30. That's probably true um, in some places. Um, 80. Wow. Relying on them as a fuel source is a mistake. You should use corn oil. You can grow corn real fast. (laughs) Oh yeah. You don't even have to go on the ocean, which is Mm. dangerous. No. Who... (laughs) 
Do you know how few people have drowned in a field? <laughs> of corn? Very few. Not zero, but few. few. Yeah. <laughs> it's happened. I the guarantee corn, it. The corn cannot drag you into the abyss. Actually, no. Have you ever heard of a, 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 a grain engulfment? Maybe they can. Okay, the corn can drag you into the abyss, but only a little bit. Only if you play in a grain silo. Don't play in grain silos. <laughs> Phenomenal life advice. Spoken by one of, the one of us that needs it the most. Nantucket had first developed its whaling industry, hunting the relatively slow and docile right whale, which is native to the eastern coast of the United States. By the early 19th century, however, the waters around Nantucket had been almost entirely depleted. Right whales typically top out at a length of about 13 to 17 meters, or 45 to 55 feet. While the largest female sperm whales only reach about 12 meters, male sperm whales get significantly bigger at around 18 meters or 60 feet. A large boy, in scientific parlance. The thickest of boys. A chonky boy. Uh, there are even some outliers that have measured as long as 24 meters, which is just below 80 feet. <laughs> that is a, a heckin' chunk. Mind that during the height of whaling, male sperm whales were disproportionately hunted and killed due to their large size and massive spermaceti organs. Uh, so they might have been culled down from their previous size. Uh, another major difference is that while right whales are baleen whales, sperm whales are toothed whales and therefore active hunters. Oh. Uh, they are also reported to use their big cushioned heads as battering rams in fights with other males. <laughs> and also, and this is not relevant, they could easily rupture a human diver's organs with just the force of their echolocations. Uh, they simply choose not to. <laughs> so early people were like, you know what? Reading in the dark is so inconvenient. We're willing to fight yeah. toothed, biting animals that can liquefy our organs with sound. They can shout so hard that we will explode. We will mm. pop like water balloons. <laughs> juicy, juicy water balloons if they yell at us right. <laughs> we will explode <laughs> like a like a tomato thrown at a, at a wall. <laughs> will it blend? <laughs> yeah. Like, this, this is an animal that can whistle so loud your intestines will burst. And we thought that was okay to fuck with for a while. <laughs> I mean, I for one look forward to being Vitamixed by an angry whale. <laughs> Uh, sperm whales aren't typically aggressive towards humans, but they are extremely intelligent social creatures that pass knowledge among themselves. Modern <laughs> studies of whalers' logs show that within a few years of whalers hunting in a particular region, their catches would drop by an average of 58% as local sperm whale pods caught on to their tactics. <laughs> We're on to you, motherfucker. Initially, the whales would respond in much the same way they would to an attack by orcas, uh, by grouping close together, which just made them easy prey to humans. However, they somehow noticed that the sail-powered ships couldn't follow them upwind. <laughs> <laughs> so then they would just swim upwind and get away. <laughs> it is incredible that we continue to be the dominant species on this planet. 
Oh my gosh, they're coming for us. If they <laughs> if they can figure out smelting, we're done. <laughs> Once the whales reach the Bronze Age, it's over for us. News from other Nantucket vessels on the west coast of South Africa was that hunting was poor. This rate, they would be at sea for far longer than two years, and already their provisions were meager. Indeed, they had left Nantucket insufficiently provisioned, a decision made on the part of the Essex ownership in order to save money. And you might very reasonably be wondering how on earth they could be low on meat, seeing as they've recently killed a fuck-off massive whale. But while Native Americans ate whale, and American whalers would do so on occasion, they hated the taste and viewed the consumption of whale meat as uncivilized. Instead, they just left the beheaded and deblubbered corpses to rot. Hmm. Can they afford to be picky eaters at this particular junction? No, but far less so later. (laughs) Oh, fun. The Essex did, however, run into a string of luck a few months later on the coast of Peru. Based on the amount of oil they collected, they captured possibly 11 whales in two months, at a pace of one every five days. Holy shit. That September, at a stop-off in Atacames, Ecuador, Henry DeWitt, one of the black sailors, deserted the ship, leaving the Essex with only two spare men to man the vessel while the others were hunting, below the minimum number of sailors to safely control a ship her size. But... They were still far below quota on whales, and Pollard was impatient to get to the offshore ground, a relatively recently discovered stretch of water 600 miles offshore near the Galapagos Islands that was all the talk among whalers. The captain knew that if the whales would co- that the, the, the captain knew that the whales would congregate in November, and if they were going to make it, they did not have much time to find and hire another sailor. <laughs> they're just they're just going with <laughs> understaffed like a Canadian emergency room. It'll be fine. Surely no one will die. Just no one get appendicitis <laughs> and we'll all be okay. <laughs> I just want to think about how terrible your boat has to be before a dude like a dude from America will fuck off into the woods in Ecuador <laughs> to get away from it. <laughs> <laughs> like absolutely not. Fuck this shit. I choose jungle. Also, this is why you, if you're going to go on an incredibly dangerous two-year journey in an age where, like, you can die from an infected toenail, maybe, like, take a spare person. Maybe don't take the minimal number of staff needed to come back from a whale hunt alive. Maybe you just have a spare or two lying around trying not to get scurvy. (laughs) You think none of you are going to die or get injured? Really? (laughs) Really? Really? (laughs) Like, one good sneeze and you're all done. The Essex left for the Galapagos on on October 2nd, 1820. Over the six days in transit to the Galapagos, they killed two more whales, bringing their total to around half full. They also, however, developed a leak, requiring them to weigh anchor in a protected bay off Hood Island in an attempt to repair some kind of problem below the waterline. So it's not clear exactly what was wrong and how exactly they tried to fix it. Nonetheless, they stayed on Hood for a full week, indicating that whatever it was, it was pretty serious. <laughs> Honestly, I'm pleasantly surprised they attempted to fix it and didn't have just some dude plug just... the hole with his butt. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't just sail into the Pacific with a small Dutch boy with his thumb in the side. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, color me impressed. <laughs> 
they collected 180 live tortoises for, for food from Hood Island and 100 from Charles Island. Each crew member was expected to collect three tortoises every day. And if you think that is bad by our, our modern eco-sensitive norms, they left suddenly due to a fire that sprang up and quickly spread across the island, which forced them back onto the ship. The fire was still burning when they left the next day. <laughs> I mean, in fairness, if there's one animal I think I could catch three of in a day, it is in fact a tortoise. Call me Nimrod, the mighty hunter. I think I can figure this out. Because <laughs> that's the thing is like, they didn't even kill, they just picked them up. <laughs> you don't really need to hunt them. You just need to like get a good grip on the shell. Yoink. Hunting. That's a strong word. <laughs> They sailed over a thousand miles west of the Galapagos along the equator before sighting another whale. On November 16th, they once more alighted to the whale boats. This time, Chase took the harpoon, a rare move that typically signaled a loss in confidence towards the boat steerer. Ooh, a diss. We've got tension in the whale boat. <laughs> As they approached where they thought a whale would surface, it instead surfaced directly beneath the whale boat, wrecking it, and dumping them into the ocean. The humans hunting a beautiful species to near extinction. <laughs> Truly underdogs to root for. <laughs> Win for the little, big, big little guys. The enormous little guys. <laughs> uh, November 20th, they were over 1,500 miles west of the Galapagos. Around 8 a.m., they once more saw spouts. This time, when a small whale surfaced ahead of Chase's boat, Chase managed to harpoon it, but they were once again too close, and the whale's tail slammed the side of the boat, opening a large hole. Chase cut the line with a hatchet and had the men plug the hole with their coats and shirts. <laughs> oh, we were not far off with the thumb thing. One man bailed as the rest rowed quickly back to the Essex. Pollard and Joy's team had by now hooked whales and were being dragged a few miles leeward. How do you bail 1,500 miles from the Galapagos Islands? You're just like, fuck it, I will swim. <laughs> well, that's the thing is they're in the middle of the Pacific, which is massive. The Pacific <laughs> is scary big. <laughs> it's just like, I'll take my chances with the whales. Tried to manage a temporary canvas patch to his boat so he could get his team back into the hunt. Personally, I would have called it a day, but, you know, you do you. <laughs> Canvas sticker, live. <laughs> Tough choice. <laughs> I fixed it. The same way you would, like, a rip in your favorite jeans. <laughs> Great. At the helm of the Essex was 15-year-old, by this point, Thomas Nickerson. Oh, happy birthday. And he was steering the ship towards the two occupied whaleboats. He spotted off the port bow a massive sperm whale, nearly 26 meters, or if you prefer, 85 feet. It was less than 100 yards away, covered in old scars. And rather than swimming away, it sat there at the top of the water, seeming to watch them. After a few breaths, it dived under the water, then surfaced around 35 yards away. Yard is only slightly larger than a meter, so this should be terrifying in both Imperial and metric. But no Nantucket whaler had ever known a whale to attack a ship, so they ignored it. 
<laughs> I was going to say not to be a soft 21st century cuck, but if I see a whale covered in visible evidence that other people have failed to stab it and it's fucking staring me down, I'm I'm going to skip that whale. I'm gonna be like, you know what? Oh, not this one. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. Deer have not evolved any new hunt evading strategies in the thousands of years we've been eating them. If these guys can figure out how to evade us in like three to five years tops, no. (laughs) 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 Nope, that fish is too smart. Nope. That fish could get a degree. I'm not fucking with it. (laughs) I I mean, I hesitate to go near a deer, and that is an animal you could conceivably hunt with a rock. This, (laughs) this, no. No. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. As it approached, the whale began to pick up speed, creating waves as it head as its head cut through the water, aimed straight at the Essex's port side. Chase ordered Nickerson to turn hard as several of the crew shouted, immediately followed by a tremendous crash as the whale rammed the Essex knocking the men flat on their backs and flinging tortoises across the deck like curling stones. <laughs> I forgot they had like 200 tortoises on the boat. <laughs> yeah, just like, like think of it like someone breaking a pool. Just, <laughs> just knocking back and forth, bouncing off each other. <laughs> it's such a shame that this happened before like decades before the release of Yakety Sacks. <laughs> The whale passed under the ship, hitting the bottom and knocking off the false keel that protects the true keel. The whale surfaced on the starboard side, seeming stunned, like it had just, you know, (laughs) smacked its head against the top of a door. (laughs) Chase took a lance, but hesitated to stab the whale, given how close its tail was to the rudder. If he thrashed, it might leave them stranded in the middle of the ocean. Hmm. But, unlike us humans, a sperm whale has a noggin with quite a lot of cushion, so the whale quickly recovered. He swam to around 600 yards leeward, then began thrashing his tail and biting the air. (laughs) Yeah, I'd be like, yeah, this is where I'd give up. I actually would have given up at the very beginning of this story. Full uncle. I would surrender immediately. (laughs) I want off the ride. (laughs) I welcome my new scarred whale overlord. The whale then swam windwards, picking up speed, crossing the ship's bow. He stopped several hundred yards in front of the ship, then turned and charged. This time the whale hit with timber splintering force, bringing the ship to a full stop. The men kept their footing this time, but their heads snapped back with the impact. Ooh, and probably half their tortoise dinner went straight off the side. (laughs) The Essex began taking on water, fast. The whale swam away. Thinking quickly, William Bond, the steward, took several trips into the quickly flooding aft cabins to collect the trunks of the captain and the first mate as well as navigational equipment, including two compasses, two copies of New American Practical Navigator, and, and two quadrants. Oh, I thought, I thought for a minute he's like, we're going to need a lot of coats. <laughs> oh, they're soaked, dude. They're soaked. I didn't realize he was like saving navigational equipment. I thought he's just like, more coats. The rest of the crew cut the lashing from the spare whaleboat and prepared to disembark in a blind panic. The Essex <laughs> was listing heavily to port, 
and the deck was only a few inches above the waterline. They boarded the boat quickly, and they were no more than two boat's lengths away from the Essex when it capsized and sank. From attack to capsize took less than ten minutes. <laughs> this all transpired so quickly that Pollard and Joy's team out on the whale boats hadn't even noticed the attack. <laughs> yeah, I, this would be the point where I'm like, you know what? I hunt squirrels from now on. That is my prey. Pretty low in fat. I think I could <laughs> squeeze a candle out of maybe eight of them. <laughs> Very unlikely to kill multiple adult men by capsizing their boat. Obed Hendricks, Pollard's boat steerer, caught sight of the Essex listing on its side as if she had been hit by an imperceptible squall on an otherwise clear day. The other men turned to look only to see an empty horizon. <laughs> Spooky. They released the two whales and made haste back towards the Essex. They arrived to find the other men silently staring at the hull of the sunken ship below the water. Oh, you fucked fucked. And there, there are a few theories about the why the whale struck the ship. It's possible that it was defending the smaller whales getting attacked. But in that case, it would have made far more sense to directly intervene with the whale boats in the water. Yeah, I feel like this is, this is a very clear fuck ships in particular sentiment. Uh, and another possibility is that the whale initially ran into the ship on accident, given that it was swimming at a normal cruising speed before the first blow. A third possibility is that the whale may have heard Chase hammering canvas onto the whale boat and interpreted the sound as the sonar clicks of a rival male. <laughs> See, sailors in wooden ships during the era often heard the, heard the clicks of sperm whales through the hull and would compare it to the sound to that of hammers, calling whales carpenter fish. Oh, so this is a, this is a, like, hey, ship, this'll teach you to hump my females. So, like, you're stepping on my turf, bro? Boom! <laughs> you got stepped to by a whale. I mean, I also feel like it's not that great a mystery why a hyper-intelligent animal capable of empathy is mad at a boat that regularly dangles its dead family off the side so it can be cut up and boiled. I, I feel like... I feel like a huge mystery. No, I, like, I feel like, I feel like I get it. At Pollard's command... The men began hacking off the masts with hatchets so that they could right the Essex enough to salvage some provisions. Pollard took a measurement and found that they were at zero degrees and 45 minutes south, 119 degrees west. Here I want to bring up an interesting concept in geography called the Oceanic Pole of Inaccessibility. The place in the ocean that is the absolute farthest from any island or coastline, otherwise known as Point Nemo. Nemo being the Latin word for nobody, and the Disney world word for fish. <laughs> Thank you for that linguistic distinction. So Point Nemo is at 48 degrees, 52 minutes south, and 123 degrees, 23 minutes west. So I wouldn't say they were in the middle of nowhere, but only because they were almost directly north of the literal middle of nowhere. <laughs> They're not like the most fucked a person can be, but they are 10 minutes from the most fucked a person can be. God damn it, Jessica, does this story end in cannibalism? Why would you say that? Oh, God damn it, you do this every time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Janelle. I'm telling a story about how people in the middle of the nowhere with no food 
are getting back to safety. Why would you assume <laughs> that just because of my entire past history and, and obsessions that this would be about cannibalism? <laughs> Why would you think that? Every single one of these episodes is just like Jessica elaborately pulling off the sheet of like a, a hidden statue to reveal it's cannibalism. It's always cannibalism. <laughs> What's behind door number two? It's, it's cannibalism. And door number it's three? Cannibalism. It's cannibalism. Could you guess the price of this toaster? It's cannibalism. <laughs> it's like a library game of th- three card Monty where the answer is always cannibalism. <laughs> Would you like to buy a vowel? The answer is cannibalism. <laughs> We've got an A. We've got an I. <laughs> I mean, I guess you don't like the taste of whale. You're going to find out how leg tastes. Mm. Mm. Long pork. Mm, I do. <laughs> I don't care for the taste of sperm whale, but I will settle for the taste of Steve. I expect that most of us don't spend a lot of time thinking about the relative size of Earth's oceans. Uh, but the Pacific is roughly twice the size of the Atlantic mm. in terms of area. So, <laughs> Yeah, I don't like the existential yeah. dread of just thinking about the size of the Pacific Ocean is too much for me to handle. Yeah. Did you know 90% of the world's population of humans lives on one hemisphere? It's the hemisphere without the Pacific Ocean in it. Because <laughs> mm. the Pacific Ocean is massive. <laughs> it's its own thing. Uh, by cutting into the hull, they were able to access 200 pounds of hardtack more freshwater casks than they could safely take aboard the whaleboats. They were also able to salvage two pounds of nails, a musket, two pistols, and a small canister of gunpowder. Two pigs that they had on board and several turtles swam away from the wrecks, and some of of which they managed to catch. (laughs) The mental image of that, just whalers hunting a swimming pig in the middle of the Pacific, is... Mm. It's perfect. That is that is great. When we boil the oceans clean off this planet, some some future extraterrestrial anthropologist who knows anything at all about our planet is gonna be real, real confused. Real confused. They're gonna find a pig skeleton somewhere a pig skeleton simply should not be. Uh, finally, the ship began to sink in earnest. Not you know the guy, but like you know yeah the the concept. A lot. <laughs> And they retreated to a safe distance to wait out the night in the lee of the ship. The next day, they made masts and sails for the whaleboats out of salvaged wood and sails from the ships. From the ship, they built up the sides of each boat to make them taller and thus more seaworthy. And thus a little more seaworthy. They then slept another night in the boats, and by the next day, the Essex was bleeding whale oil out into the sea in a giant greasy slick that stuck to the sides of all the boats. Mmm. <laughs> this will be recognized as the first modern oil spill. <laughs> Give me some dish soap, I could scrub that off a duck. <laughs> the, the most controversial of Don's commercials. <laughs> <laughs> Chase told Pollard they needed to make for the nearest island, but the captain dithered, insisting on making another stab at salvage and taking a last reading of their location at noon. He determined that then that they had drifted twelve, mi- uh, sorry, nineteen miles north. Hmm. Their options weren't good. Turning back eastward wasn't an option due to the limited efficacy of their simple ad hoc sails against the trade winds. For those unfamiliar, around the equator, the prevailing wind direction is permanently east to west. To massively oversimplify, this is mostly because the Earth is spinning in the opposite direction and doesn't carry the air along with it. <laughs> You're going west, whether you like it or not. 
Uh, in order to turn back, they would first need to head either north or more likely south until they were far enough from the equator to hit the variable winds close to the poles. The other, less impossible option was to continue heading west to the nearest islands 1,200 miles away, which were the Marquesas in French-controlled Polynesia. However, mates Chase and Joy were leery about the archipelago due to lurid stories from European visitors that depicted the locals as vicious cannibals, which is neither entirely true nor entirely untrue. There's some indication that cannibalism was practiced in Polynesia in certain ritual circumstances with captured enemies during wartime. It was not an everyday occurrence, and they were not a threat to random passing travelers. Even the most enthusiastic cannibal is not going to eat a bunch of teenage boys who've been sweating on a whale Marinating ship. Marinating in whale oil? Oh, yeah, no, for, for two, <laughs> absolutely not. Absolutely not. Even, absolutely not. Even Disgusting. In, no, even if you encountered the Donner Party, they would think twice. <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a seasoning issue. Mm, the heartburn alone. I mean, like, when I go out every day, you know, to the bus stop or whatever, no one's in danger. I'm not going to eat some lady at the bus stop. <laughs> Jessica keeps her cannibalism ritualistic and for the washed. If you stink of whale gut, I'm going to take a pass. What a fun Vancouver safety tip that is. <laughs> Smear yourself in whale oil so that Jessica will let you live. I mean, I don't know let you live. Not eat you, certainly. <laughs> Not eat you. Sorry, I overpromised. Pollard's preferred course was to go past the Marquesas to the Society Islands, including Tahiti, which was relatively unknown but had not been accused of cannibalism to his knowledge. I, don't know, I feel like it could have gone to Tahiti. I, I feel like you shouldn't. Uh, if the nearest spit of land is like twelve hundred miles away, I feel like maybe this is not the time for cultural stereotypes. Like you're you're straight gonna die because you're being quite racist. It comes back to this problem of, like, in a lot of situations, people who know how to swim are more likely to drown. I.e., if they, they understand the sea. They understand sailing. They don't understand the Marquesas. They don't understand French Polynesia. And that is why they kind of make a decision to stick with what they know, even though it's insanely dangerous. The most dangerous, if you have two options, and one of those options is the unfathomable depths of the Pacific Ocean, that is the more dangerous option. Just every single time. Never choose the unfathomable depths of the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> not as a foe, not as a lover, none of it. Abs stay the fuck out of the ocean. Uh, instead, Chase and Joy pushed Pollard to sail 1,500 miles south, mm. then head all the way back to Peru. Assuming they made 60 miles a day, they could hit 26 degrees south after 25 days. Mm. From there, the variable winds would push them back to the mainland in about four days, which technically was more than enough time if they stretched their rations. Mm. Better, they might run into another whaler on the way. Captain reluctantly agreed. You're, you're on a glorified dinghy powered by bedsheets with a basket full of hard bread and a gun. And a live turtle. Oh, and a live turtle and a pig that you've hauled out of the Pacific Ocean. Godspeed. They set out, seven men each in Pollard and Joy's boat, 
six in chases, which was in the worst shape. Each boat carried 200 pounds of hardtack, 65 gallons of fresh water, and two tortoises. Pollard and Chase each had one set of navigational instruments, while Joy had none. Pollard took the musket, and each mate took a pistol. For, for what exactly? What exactly are you going to use those for? <laughs> I don't know. Fishing? Um, I mean, like, the most likely thing they're going to use it on is each other, to be blunt. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to shoot whoever looks the most delicious at a certain point. Yeah, and this is, like, maintaining discipline in a very likely situation for mutiny. Pollard, likely out of concern, ensured that his 18-year-old cousin, Owen Coffin, was on his boat, as well as the boy's two friends, Ramsdell and Ray. His boat steerer was Obed Hendricks, another Nantucketer. He carried only two outsiders. Chase's boat carried fellow Nantucketers Lawrence and Nickerson and three outsiders. Joey's boat carried no other Nantucket locals, only six outsiders and himself. He had been suffering from a long-standing illness, dating from before the Essex left port, likely tuberculosis, and was at this point starting to worsen. So we are already kind of in a situation where they are keeping like all of the people close to them in the safest boats. And Joy is being put in this situation where he's kind of being like, they have to have someone from their team there, but they are creating a situation where he is the most likely to get lost and the most likely to die. So all I presume the black sailors have to ride with the dude who is bleeding from the mouth. Um, not all of them. Like, the black sailors are kind of spread throughout the ships. Uh, you know, the better to uh, keep them uh, from... Uh... Joining forces, I, gu- I guess. Yeah, th- there is a very clear dynamic here. One that predates the loss of the ship, but one that is likewise brought to the fore in a survival situation. Nantucketers look after their own. And they have placed just enough of their people in Joy's boat to control it. Joy is ill. He has no compass. If his boat gets separated from the others, they are as good as dead. Hmm. Chase getting fewer crew because his boat is in rough shape might seem like a detriment, but it also has the clear upside of having to split the same amount of food among fewer people. That's, that's your reward for being in the rickety tugboat. So they set out, heading south thanks to a strong breeze, and only a few hours later, they lose sight of the drowned ship. The boats handle awkwardly, and their rations are tightly managed. Approximately 500 calories of hardtack and half a pint of water a day. <laughs> oh, so fun. That's where we're starting. Oh, this is this is great. Mm, this, is, this is not an illustrious start. This is not how you start a story where everybody survives to the end. This is not a good start. This is not a good middle. This wouldn't even be a good end. Yeah, the crew was likewise withdrawing from nicotine, the tobacco having gone down with the ship. Oh, that that always helps with the mood. I find, yeah, having having worked most of my career in community mental health, behavioral health with people who smoke, I, I know that there's nothing people who smoke regularly enjoy more than being in a high-stress situation where they literally can't. That's great. They could figure out their latitude through noonday readings, but they didn't have the skill to figure figure out their longitude. Oh, good. Calculating longitude from lunar readings was fairly complicated, 
so many captains relied on dead reckoning, carefully tracking the ship's direction and speed in order to estimate the distance traveled and keep an eye out for landmarks. <laughs> oh, we're going to die because we're racist and bad at math. There's nothing people are good at when they're under extreme duress than high-stakes geometry. <laughs> this is great. So, dead reckoning couldn't account for drift. Oh, good. But it was reliable enough to get around. And the lack of a timer on the boats made even dead reckoning difficult. And Pollard quickly gave up on it. <laughs> oh, the fuck it, we are where we are system. Like every dad on a road trip. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, South America is real long, but the, the ocean is bigger. <laughs> You're not hitting, it's a big target, but not, not big enough. On November 24th, four days after the sinking of the Essex, Chase's boat was hit by a wave, filling it with water and forcing the men to quickly bail, before they were hit again. Unfortunately, this soaked some of the hardtack in salt water, which they ate anyway, leading to hypernatremia. Mm, mm. Too much salty salty. Yeah, your fingers will puff up like little cocktail sausages, but also it can cause... <laughs> Like organ failure. That's probably that's probably the more distressing of the symptoms, actually. I don't know. I'd be pretty disturbed if I had cocktail weenie fingies <laughs> around a bunch of people who've been starving for days. <laughs> you know, wake up that's... with someone nibbling on my fingers. <laughs> Jessica's like, fuck my kidneys and my weenie fingers. <laughs> this is the real problem. Get away from my Vienna sausages. <laughs> Some Looney Tunes ass logic. The same boat developed a leak the next morning, forcing them to make a rapid ad hoc repair lest they sink. Mm. That evening, Richard Peterson, the only black man on the boat, led them in prayers and a few hymns. The favorable wind direction held until November 27th. They had made considerable distance south, but they had likewise drifted substantially westward because they lacked a centerboard, which is a doohickey that sticks out of the bottom of the boat, and uses lift to counter the lateral force placed on the sail. And this keeps the ship from listing in the direction of the wind. Uh, this brought them quite close to the Society Islands, but dry land that might be inhabited by cannibals was of no interest. So, like, they almost accidentally drifted into these islands they were trying to avoid. Which, like, again, they were not going to eat them. That's, <laughs> to be very clear. Yeah. Like, I mean... It's like that, that old joke about, like, you know, a religious man sinking in the middle of a lake and, like, saying, you know, don't don't worry about me. God will help, help me. And God sends, like, a ship and another ship and a helicopter. And he says, nope, God will help me. And then he drowns. Yes. And then God says, dude, I sent you the boat. Right. Like, one, if you weren't appetizing before your boat sank, you sure as hell are not appetizing now. And two, like... No, you're disgusting. I feel like... And low in nutrition. When you're living on salty biscuits that are very rapidly giving you kidney failure, um, you take your fucking chances with uh, local relations. <laughs> you just... Mm. You chance it. You gotta... It's, it's I mean, some point. <laughs> like, people always worry about the silliest things. Like, what if I get murdered? You are more likely to die in a traffic accident. <laughs> what if... Always. What if I get murdered? Ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, you know, some people do get murdered, and I'm sorry for them, you know, if they took my advice. But, you know, the vast majority of you will never be murdered. Like, dehydration, like, you, you can, people are people. You can reason with people. People have been reasoning with other people forever. They're, they're Polynesians and the French. They're, you can have a conversation. Um, 
uh, dehydration. You cannot reason with dehydration. No, it it's not going to listen to you. You're just going to die and quickly. That's this is just all an exercise in like terrible actuarial knowledge. Like, these people do not understand statistical probability at all. This is <laughs> atrocious. That's the problem when you're a 14-year-old in the middle of the ocean who has never taken a stats class. It's funny because this is a crew where, like, I mean, we already spoiled it. At least two of them survive. What stories have been lost to history because they were so stupid they all died? Uh, The next day, the wind grew rougher, still in the wrong direction. They might have tied their boats together for safety, but that would have compromised speed and maneuverability. That evening, Pollard's boat was attacked by an orca. <laughs> oh, that's just cruel. That's <laughs> you just were mean. attacked by an orca. Something <laughs> fair at that point. <laughs> the whale rammed its head against the boat and took a sizable chunk out of it. It then played with the vessel, batting it about like a cat with a toy. The men repeatedly beat it with two poles until it finally <laughs> relented and swam away. <laughs> and like, unlike sperm whales, it's relatively well documented that orcas will occasionally attack and even sink sailboats. Oh, for sport. It used to be extremely unusual, but if you've been paying attention to what's currently going on in Spain... <laughs> we've, we've pissed them off. We deserve this. Orcas are kind of interesting because they actually used to help with whale hunts. Like, they, they kind of caught on to what whalers were doing, and they would lead whaling vessels to pods of other species of whales, and then they would just eat what was left over. Um. <laughs> I mean, they're sort of class traders, but they're also genius. <laughs> Technically, they're dolphins, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, The Essex crew transferred the provisions out of Pollard's struggling boat and spent the night in utter terror that yet another whale might come along and destroy one of the other boats. (laughs) They were luckily able to fix Pollard's craft by the light of day. I just, I can't decide. Like, part of me feels like after this I would go full Captain Ahab and just, like, devote my life to hunting down whales. But part of me is like, I would never want to see the fucking ocean again. <laughs> I would never leave. I would I would find the driest piece of land. I would move to the desert. I I would never go to another pond. I know. <laughs> Absolutely. I would sponge bath for the rest of my days. <laughs> to avoid the call of the whale. By the 28th, all boat, three boats need to be bailed constantly, especially chases. On the 29th, Chase decided to butcher one of the tortoises. Some of the crew drank its blood, Mm. while others were a little too repulsed. Uh, They started a fire in its shell, cooked it, and ate it all. (laughs) Okay, getting cooked in your own shell is just insult to injury. (laughs) I I would haunt whatever's left of that dinghy. They finally had enough good weather to take another reading and found themselves nearly at 8 degrees south meaning they had traveled nearly 500 miles since leaving the ship. Hmm. Having had a good meal and finally running out of salt-ruined hardtack by December 3rd, their health began to improve as well as their spirits. That night, they nearly lost track of Joy's boat in the dark, but they were able to find him by flashing a lantern and spotting his answering light a quarter-mile leeward. Two nights later, it was Chase's boat that became separated. This time, he summoned the others by firing his pistol. 
presumably pointing upward. I don't think he was pointing to the side. That's dangerous. <laughs> if one of us is lost, we're all lost, motherfucker. <laughs> they were hit by another gale on the 8th, then once more separated from Pollard on the night of the 9th, not finding him again until the following morning. Ooh. On the afternoon of the 10th, four ships jumped into Chase's boat, one of which the first mate immediately grabbed and ate, scales and all, mm. while the other men in the boat tried to get a hold of the three others. Just a just a psychologically healthy dude biting the head off a live fish. <laughs> as, as one does when things are going well. By the 14th, they were stuck in a calm, and Chase cut the rations in his boat to three ounces of hardtack, though he maintained the water ration at half a pint, as they were all agonizingly thirsty and had, by this point, been dri- driven to drinking their own piss. I was going to say, this feels like a, like a Bear grills moment. We are, over de- we are adapting. We are overcoming. We are drinking piss. There comes a point where the hydration benefit of that is not worth the, like, no. destroying your kidneys. You piss it out for a reason. Yeah, it's it's gonna be orange. I'm telling you right now, it's gonna be orange. <laughs> These men had the orangest piss of all yeah, time. It's 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 basically gonna come out of your body looking like Sunny D. <laughs> mm. Vivid, extra pulpy though. <laughs> oh God, never leave, never leave land. They discovered and immediately ate some gooseneck barnacles stuck to the bottom of the boats. And they ate until full and found themselves unable to reserve them from the next day. They just ate all of them. Nature's Pringles. Mm. <laughs> once, once you pop, you just can't stop. <laughs> <laughs> On the 15th, a board had come loose from the bottom of Chase's ship. Benjamin Lawrence, however, volunteered to tie a rope around himself and hold the board in place with a hatchet. Oh my god, no. No. While Chase hammered the nail in, so that when the nail hit the blade, it would curl backwards, securing the board in place. This, this is, is such one a step above using your butt. This is this is some like middle of the ocean jackass. Like this is no. Uh, the next day, a few of them began to experience hallucinations, likely from dehydration. Mm. Uh, that afternoon, Pollard proposed that they row past the calm, which they did, until they soon collapsed with exhaustion. Early in the morning of December 20th, a month after the sinking of the Essex, they spotted land. Henderson Island, a rocky, uninhabited speck less than 10 kilometers across at its widest point. Of course, they assumed it was actually Ducey Island, another island in the same chain, a ways to the east. Regardless, this meant that despite having traveled over 1,500 miles south, southwest, and finally east, they were still no closer to South America. Oh, good, good. A bustling port, this is not. But it does have plentiful flora and fauna. It even has a source of potable water. A weak spring of fresh water below the waterline that is only exposed for less than an hour at low tide. <laughs> These are the unluckiest people who've ever walked this earth. Yeah, by the 25th, they found themselves actually running out of food. Like, this island could not support this number of men, and they ended up eating nearly every egg, animal, and edible plant on the island, and the birds just (laughs) fucked off and left. (laughs) Oh, they just went locust mode. Oh, they they chewed this thing down to the nubs. 
I'm surprised they didn't <laughs> eat the grass. By the 26th, they had decided to fix their boats as best as they could and leave. Hoping still to make the 3,000 miles remaining to Chile. The men had somewhat recovered, so some more than others. The black sailors were still weaker than the others, being older on average, and having had poor quality food even when they were aboard the Essex. Worst off was Joy, who had barely recovered at all. This is one thing, like, as much as we've been joking about, like, these all being teenage fucking boys, the people who are older, like, the people who are even quite elderly, they are all black. And if you think that this is rough on a teenage boy, you do not understand how rough it is on a 60-year-old man. Ooh. Ooh, this is, this is not great. This is not where grandpa needs to be. And that's one of the reasons why they're getting sicker, they're getting weaker, faster than the white sailors. They're older. They're older. They're much older. Like, this was not... One of the reasons why this wasn't a very popular job, one of the reasons why black sailors could get it at all, is because it was rough on the body. It was rough on them (laughs) mentally. Oh, yeah. You don't... (laughs) You don't uh, do this into your 60s if you have an option. So the people who are doing it into that age, they are socially marginalized, to say the least. And... Actually, three of the white outsiders decided to stay behind on Henderson Island, not even requesting that any food be left behind. They're just like, we choose death on this island. Uh, The others, relieved to have fewer mouths to split food between, made no argument. The remaining 17 left on the 27th. This time, they used an improvised log line to at least have some means of tracking longitude. They intended to head for Easter Island, directly east, but they were once again pushed southward. They planned to island hop, but the wind shifted. By January 7th, they had been pushed at least 360 miles south and only made 600 miles east. On the 8th, Matthew Joy, who had continued to deteriorate, asked to be moved to the captain's boat so he could be among his fellow Nantucket sailors. Three days later, on January 10th, he asked to return to his own boat, perhaps out of a sense of duty, and died that afternoon. Hmm. They sewed him into his clothes, tied a stone to his feet, and consigned him to the sea. Okay. We're at our first sea burial. This is not a great landmark. Joy's boat steerer, Thomas Chappell, the Englishman, was back on Henderson Island. Oh, the Brits, like, I choose choose death. Death! Death for me, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm good, thanks. So instead, Joy's boat was taken over by 21-year-old Obed Hendricks. Hendricks found, to his dismay, that the boat only had two or three days' worth of hardtack left. Mm. The next day, they were hit by a hard gale, which luckily came from the northwest. Visibility was low that night, and Chase's boat in the lead. He kept looking back every few minutes to see that they were still together, but around 11 o'clock, he checked again and saw nothing. They continued east-southeast as planned, hoping to spot the other boats by daylight, but finally concluded that they were on their own. On January 13th, Chase took stock of their provisions, noting that they still had a fair deal of bread, but nonetheless having their rations, halving their rations once more to only an ounce and a half of hardtack per day. (laughs) Mm, A cruise liner, this is not... Janelle, have you ever thought of if you'd be able to survive on, like, that little package of cookies they give you on the airplane for, like, a day? (laughs) 
how about that little package of cookies for like two months <laughs> oh, yeah. every day? You're in great shape when that's over. I don't know how much water they're getting at this point, but it can't be more than the like those two little cups <laughs> that they give you on the airplane too. No, oh, it's it's mostly Most, piss. It's almost just entirely piss. Piss and biscuits at this point. Back on the other two boats, on January 14th, Hendrick's boat ran out of provisions. Pollard, however, agreed to share his boat's stock. Had Chase been with them, he might have denied them his share of ration, as they had started the journey with the same amount of bread and he had obsessively rationed his own boat's stores. And had one fewer people. Um, on Chase's <laughs> boat, the men began to suffer diarrhea, a common symptom of starvation. They would likewise sometimes black out when sitting up. I like that when, like, you're in the final stages of starvation, your body's like, you know what, let's just hit the fast forward on this. Let's just skip to the end here. Pause button. (laughs) Pause button. (laughs) Diarrhea is more of a fast forward. You're just like, you were dying, but now you're dying. (laughs) Uh, That night, one of the crew woke Chase and informed him that Richard Peterson, the elderly black man, had stolen some bread. Chase turned on Peterson, threatening to shoot him if he did not give back what he had taken. Peterson did so, pleading with Chase to spare his life. Chase warned him not to do so again on pain of death, but gave no other punishment. Peterson, an elderly black New Yorker, was almost three times as old as anyone else on the boat. Oof. That night, their boat was attacked and buffeted by a large shark. No, we're just slowly working our way down the aquatic predator list. <laughs> Are there any jellyfish who'd like to take a shot? Like They found themselves too weak to fight it off, and instead they were forced to wait until it grew bored and left. The next day, they were joined by a group of porpoises, playfully surfacing near their boat and dodging away as the crew had clumsily attempted to stab them. I don't know, <laughs> mocking... Mocking them in 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 favor of their their larger cousins, I guess. I was gonna say porpoises are smart. They're definitely making fun of them. Like hey, you're gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure the men at this point in the voyage were like doing the voices on the ship. There's no way you're like. <laughs> oh no, way you're not. <laughs> you're seeing the Hat Man by this part of your journey. On January seventeenth, they once more found themselves becalmed. Now, on the night of the 18th, they found themselves surrounded by a pod of sperm whales, who they could hear breathing and thrashing in the dark. Again, just taunting them. And I bet they were just scared shitless. Except they couldn't be scared shitless. They have horrible diarrhea. Yeah, they ran (laughs) into shit ages ago. On the 19th, the wind picked up again, though it could not seem to decide on a direction. January 20th, two months after the sinking of the Essex, Richard Peterson refused his final ration, saying it might be of help to someone else, but not to him. He slipped into unconsciousness and died a few hours later. Mm. According to the survivors, his body was then consigned to the sea. The same day, Thomas Lawson, a black sailor on Hendrick's boat, also died. They came to the grim decision to butcher and eat him. What the fuck? How, how did two people die in the same day? And they're like, mm, first guy is not appetizing enough. Second dude, though. Well, these, they're, they're split up. They're different groups. Oh, I see. Chase, Chase's boat, where the first guy dies, is the one that still has food. Right. They're like, we can we can have some civilization. We can do a burial at sea. The other group are like, we are, yeah. we are full Lord of the Flies over here. Like, <laughs> Yeah, like, Hendrix's boat runs out of hardtack the next day. 
Oh, yeah, you're only as civilized as, like, your food stores will allow you to be. All of us are. Like, there is... <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> similar to, like, whether or not you would suck a dick for a million dollars, there is a point at which cannibalism becomes the only sensible option, no matter what your scruples. Oh, is that what you compare it to? <laughs> I mean, either way, you are tasting human flesh. And for me, that is very similar. <laughs> oh, no. Question, would you eat a man's dick for a million dollars? I'm questioning. <laughs> I don't know. Ask me after the next interest rate hike. It's different if it's not attached. It just gets worse. It's, <laughs> it's so much worse. Two million dollars. Oh my god. You'd be able to afford a shitty house. <laughs> kind of. January 23rd, another of the black sailors, Charles Shorter, died and was butchered and eaten. Oh, yeah, we're going full Donner Party now. Now everybody's getting eaten. A hundred miles south of them, Chase's crew, having no black people to eat, were too weak to even steer. They had begun to allow the boat to drift where it may, carried along by the whims of the wind. They would eventually drift far enough south that they would have to turn the boat back northward towards the equator just to avoid possible hypothermia. <laughs> oh, good. We're fucked fucked. On the 27th, another member of Hendrix's crew died and was eaten. Black sailor Isaiah Shepard. The next day, the only black member of Pollard's crew, Samuel Reed, died and was also eaten. At this point, only seven men were left out of the two boats, five of which were from Nantucket, and William Bond in Hendrix's boat who was the only remaining black man, and I bet he was nervous. Yeah. I'm nervous for him. Notably, Bond was the officer's steward not a sailor. He had therefore had a far better diet and far less hard labor prior to the sinking. He's a servant, not a sailor. You want to be in optimal health at this point. This is this is how you yeah. reach the final seven. Yeah. Have access to food. And and Ooh. limited strain on your body. Pro tip to getting fucked by a whale. <laughs> Live a soft life before you spend two months drinking your own piss in the open ocean. Uh, and if you're new to the topic of survival cannibalism, you might be wondering how the heck you can eat four people in a week and still be hungry. Uh, if you're a regular listener, you'll know that the human body needs to consume a certain amount of fat in order to properly digest protein. <laughs> Otherwise, you just get sustained diarrhea and eventually die anyway. Unfortunately, when eating fellow starvation victims, the first to die are those with the lowest fat stores. Funnily enough, this is also why women are more likely to survive prolonged starvation than men. Smaller average body size, higher average body fat percentage. Yeah! I hate, the my least favorite thing to come out of my friendship with you is the fact that I now know, the way that I know like my parents' names, that you need to eat human meat with butter in order to digest it. <laughs> Don't worry, Janelle. You and me, we're going to make it. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm actually <laughs> physically all set for two months of starvation on the open ocean. I don't. I e am fully prepared. <laughs> <laughs> I still come back from that journey like a size eight. I don't, e I don't even thin at the end of that. <laughs> I am. People are going to be asking me what my secret is, and I will not be able to face the horrors of telling them. <laughs> It turns out uh, the only protein you need is leg. <laughs> yeah, but I, I definitely survived that whole thing. <laughs> Absolutely. I've lived the, the softest of lives. 
the two boats were at this point weak enough that they likewise were struggling to steer and keep track of one another. And on the unusually dark night of the 29th, Pollard looked up to find his boat alone on the sea. The three remaining men on the other boat, Obed Hendricks, William Bond, and Joseph West, disappeared and were never seen alive again. Oh, sudden elimination. This left Pollard, Coffin, Ramsdell, and Ray, Nantucketers all, alone. February 6th, 16-year-old Charles Ramsdale suggested that they should draw lots and kill and eat the loser. Oh, we're there already. <laughs> Two and a half months in, we are there. Just teenagers. And we are down to teenagers at this point. It's, it's oh, basically yeah. the, the uh, elderly 28-year-old and some teenagers that have survived. Yes. Pollard was initially resistant, but Owen Coffin, Pollard's 18-year-old cousin, took Ramsdale's side. Barzillay Ray likewise seemed to agree with his two friends. Pollard, therefore, reluctantly assented, which has been a theme throughout this whole thing. Just this 28-year-old man getting led around by the nose by children. <laughs> and it's going so well. When Owen Coffin drew the black spot, Pollard offered to protect him, spare him, or be killed in his stead. Coffin, however, said that he was resigned to his fate and that he, quote, liked it as well as any other. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, you're not having a good time when you're like, you know what, being eaten is the better option. They dr again drew lots to decide who would kill him, and it fell to Ramsdale. He initially balked, but then finally reconciled himself. Coffin gave a last message for his mother to Pollard, reassured the others that the lots had been fared, and he accepted his fate. He laid his head down on the boat's gunwale, where he was shot by Ramsdell, butchered, and eaten. Oh, yeah. Not enough therapy in the fucking world. <laughs> hey, how do you feel about this, George? You know, eating your cousin? Who you, who you shot? Who was good Who you shot? Just, just none of this is... He oh, just no. laid down and let his friend shoot him in the head. <laughs> and then his cousin had to eat him. <laughs> oh, yeah. They didn't really believe in mental health in this particular juncture yeah. of human, of mankind. Give this last message to my mother. Try to look her in the eyes. <laughs> if you want a lifetime of night terrors, this is how you get a lifetime of night terrors. Right here. On January 28th, Chase had finally relented on the strict rationing, realizing they couldn't much longer survive on so little food. On the morning of the, of the 8th of February, Cole, the last surviving outsider, began, began ranting incoherently. He fell down repeatedly, only to spring up again and keep raving. Finally, by 10 o'clock, he was too weak to speak. He moaned in pain for the next six hours before he began to spasm and convulse. By 4 o'clock, he was dead. <laughs> oh, oh, so, so there's two accounts of this story because that's, that's who lived. Oh, the next day, when Lawrence and Nickerson were preparing Cole's body, Chase stopped them, knowing that they had only three days of hardtack left. He suggested keeping the body as food rather than being forced to cast lots later. Lawrence and Nickerson made no objection. The three remaining crew ate his organs first, but struggled to consume his tough meat. 
Jesus, you gotta die, and uh, you gotta die in like the most horrific conditions imaginable, and also you get remembered for all time because your body generated a poor restaurant review. You go down in history for how stringy you are. They're all basically jerky at this point. <laughs> God, <laughs> whatever the opposite of veal is, this <laughs> dehydrated teenage boy. On February 11th, in Pollard's boat. 19-year-old Barzillet Ray died. By February 14th, Chase's crew had recovered enough to steer the boat and sustained westerly winds had brought them within 300 miles of the islands of Masafuera and Juan Fernandez. A five-day journey, though they had only three days of hardtack remaining. The next day, Chase saw a thick cloud to the northeast, a likely sign of land. On the morning of the 16th, Lawrence spotted a sail several mi- seven miles leeward. The next three hours were a desperate race to meet the ship, which was unlikely to spot them unless they got within closer range. They drew closer, and eventually someone on the deck spotted them, and the ship shortened sail and slowed. The ship was the Indian, a British merchant merchantman. When an officer aboard asked who they were through a megaphone, all Chase was able to reply was Essex, whale ship Nantucket. The three men in the boat were so weak that they had to be carried aboard, where they were fed tapioca pudding. It is strange. <laughs> Imagine how hard your body would reject that after two months of like... You would shoot it up like a whale spout. It would come oh right out. <laughs> right back up. Two months of urine, hardtack, and kidneys. <laughs> like... One does not make a smooth transition from human liver to tapioca pudding. What? It was 89 days since the sinking of the Essex. <laughs> that day, the Indian passed within sight of Massafuera. In a few days, it would arrive in Valparaiso, Chile. The whale boat was initially on a tow rope behind the Indian, but that night, it was hit by a gale and it disappeared. Would you want to spend another day in that cursed thing? I'd be like, no, sink it now. Burn it. Burn it. <laughs> Burn it. Burn it. Let it sink. Consign it to the flames. On February 23rd, the, four- the 94th day since the ethics sank, Pollard and Ramsdell were within close distance of the Chilean coast, though significantly further south. They had made the decision to crack open the bones to get at the marrow of their former shipmates. Which is a good idea, by the way, cannibalism aside. The bone marrow typically contains fat long after the body is depleted. And they were, uh, they were so busy sucking on the bones that they were startled to hear human voices and see the shadow of a ship pass over. <laughs> and I... they looked up to find the crew of the Nantucket whale ship Dauphin staring at them. <laughs> I imagine after like that ordeal that other ships could locate you by smell. <laughs> you probably just had caught a whiff of something upwind. <laughs> Can you imagine just being one of those people on that boat? Just looking down and watching two people just sucking a human femur? <laughs> They've gotta be like some of the grimiest human like just emaciated skeletal grime lords. Suck it on their friend's femur. Like just mm. Chase's group informed authorities of the three men left behind. The Surrey, a merchantman already planning to head in that direction, was informed and instructed to search the area around Ducey Island. Chapel, Weeks, and Wright 
were successfully rescued no. on April 9th. Yes. I would be mad. They were rescued I would on be mad. April 9th, 1821, 141 days after the Essex sank. I would be like, you know what? Fuck you guys a little bit. They stayed, which was what they should have done all along. They made the right decision. They they had fresh water. They and were like correct. Food. They're probably in like miles, but they, ne- they didn't have to eat a human femur. Like they're just... No, yeah. They're just eating bird eggs yeah. and enjoying fresh water from a ground spring. Yeah. They're good. Half an hour a day. Half an hour a day. <laughs> Probably doing, like, fucking sit-ups when <laughs> the boat arrives. <laughs> In total, eight out of 20 of the crew of the Essex survived their ordeal. Of those that did live, most lived to be old men, with the exception of Wright, who was lost in a hurricane in the West Indies, and Chapel, who died of a fever while working in Tamor as a missionary. Okay, Hurricane Boyd was just hated by God at that point. Just <laughs> Right. God wants you dead specifically. What God? Poseidon, probably. Probably. I don't know what you did to piss him off. You, you did something. Poseidon hates you. Pollard attempted to return to work as a captain, but the next ship ran aground on shoals during a storm. You know what? Some some people are not meant to do certain things. Some some careers are just not for you. Yeah, that's not it, though. He then joined a merchantman, which was wrecked as well. Okay, at this point, he's unlucky. He was then considered horribly unlucky, and he was relegated to the post of Nantucket's night watchman. For the rest of his life, every November 20th, he fasted in remembrance of the men of the Essex. On the shore where he belonged. <laughs> You do, like, stay off the boats. It's you at this point. <laughs> it's you. It's just you. <laughs> Owen Chase published an account that later inspired Moby Dick and continued as a whaler for 19 years. Poof. His wife had died while he was at sea, so he married a one- another woman who also died while he was at sea. He then married a third woman who did not die while he- when he was at sea, but she did give birth, like, 16 months after he left port, so he got a divorce. Mm. Still raised the kid, though. <laughs> mm. <laughs> that is that is not the correct amount of time. Chase then married a fourth woman two months later, who also did not die while he was at sea. Uh, in his old age, however, Chase began hiding food in the attic of his Nantucket home and was eventually institutionalized. Oh, yeah, I feel like dementia is going to hit all these people like a ton of bricks. <laughs> they were not okay afterwards. Not really. No. No, you, you don't really walk that that off. I mean, physically alone, like recovering from that oh. physically with, I don't even remember what century this is. Nineteenth century medical technology, uh, not ideal. Recovering from that psychologically with a nineteenth century understanding of mental health, you fucked. This is one of the worst things that's ever happened to anybody. We're like comfortably. We're barely out of the stage of human history where we're blaming things on demons and ghosts. Like, this is, mm, horrific. But yes, that's the sinking of the whale ship Essex. If you're ever lost in the middle of the ocean, go to land. Any land. <laughs> and then stay there. The ocean is dangerous and filled with horrors. <laughs> stay on the island and wait to get rescued. Yeah, it'll take a while live as soft a life as possible uh stay out of the ocean and if you don't listen to those first two pieces of advice uh crack your friends femurs open to eat the bone marrow um yeah three equally valuable pieces of advice yeah also on uh henderson island there was a previous group of people who got shipwrecked 
Um, and they found, but they didn't find the water source, so they just found their bones in a cave later. Oh, that's gotta feel good. You're like, you know what? <laughs> I got further in this game than you did. I'm winning! <laughs> uh, we hope that you've enjoyed this episode. I'm Jessica. And I'm still Janelle. <laughs>